This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Well, let's turn in our Bibles this evening to Jeremiah chapter 35, looking tonight at verses 1 through 19. Jeremiah 35, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites, and brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials above the chamber of Masiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they answered, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us. Drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard, or field, or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you've not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to your truth tonight. We thank you for this passage. Thank you for these Rechabites of whom it speaks. And pray, Father, that you would help us to learn what you would have us learn from them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter presents a strong contrast with the chapter that went before, chapter 34, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. You'll remember in chapter 34, King Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people, a covenant with God that they would free their slaves, proclaim liberty to them. In 2034, verse 9, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, and they did. Verse 10, they obeyed, set them free. They obeyed, released them. In verse 11, afterward, they turned around and took them back and brought them back into subjection as slaves. A covenant, they were going to do it. They said they were going to do it. The Lord commended them for what they did, in a way keeping the, the, uh, the, the, the laws of the Old Testament of Leviticus that requires setting free a slave after six years, the seventh being a year of freedom. Uh, and they did that, but then it seems that rather promptly they turned right back around and forcibly subjected their slaves back to slavery again, stripping them of their freedom and enslaving them once again. And the Lord was very angry about that. One, that they'd not been keeping his law regarding release of slaves, but two, that they would engage in this covenant to do this and then turn right around and violate this covenant in, in so crass, so brazen and so unfaithful away. Now, chapter 34 is followed by chapter 35, in which we have just the opposite. We have a record of faithfulness, a record of obedience, that frankly is nothing short of astonishing. We see it in verses 1 through 11 with the obedience of the Rechabites. The Lord comes to Jeremiah and basically says, go to the house of the Rechabites, that is the clan, the family of the Rechabites, and speak to them. Basically invite them to come and, and meet you in the temple of the Lord, in the precincts of the temple, uh, because there they were in Jerusalem, as they explained, because of the uh, Babylonian threat. They had taken refuge in the city of Jerusalem, but that was not their, their normal place. Well, Jeremiah is basically to invite them to uh, what I guess best could be described as a social engagement and they come and they meet with Jeremiah there. And the location, uh, although somewhat lost to us, is, is given very specifically as to where they were in the temple precincts. Verse 4, I brought them into the house of the Lord, to the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which, by the way, is a, is a significant title in Scripture given to uh, prophets or sometimes prominent uh, leaders, prophets in the Old Testament. We know nothing about this man except that he is here designated as a man of God, perhaps a generation before Jeremiah, above the chamber of Maaseiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold, very specifically named where he met with them. And when he meets with them there, he sets before them pitchers or bowls full of wine and then the cups from which they would actually drink. So significant quantity of wine in verse 5, I said to them, drink wine. Or another way translated, it might just be more colloquially, have some wine. This, this engagement, this social interaction. Verse 6, their answer is, thanks, but 
No thanks. We will drink no wine. Why not? For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. Sorry, we we can't drink wine because our father told us not to. Wow. Well, then they go on to elaborate. That's not just one command in isolation. It was one command in a whole complex of commands, instructions given to them that was to shape their, their whole lifestyle. Look at what he says. Verse 7, you shall not build a house. You know, it's not just you don't drink wine. You're not going to build a house. You're not going to sow seed. Don't plant or have a vineyard, but live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. So Jonadab had commanded them to live essentially this nomadic lifestyle, uh, a somewhat ascetic lifestyle, not to drink any wine, uh, not to settle down, not to plant fields, but to live in tents, to be on the move, to be nomads. You think, well, why would he tell them that? Well, uh, one possible reason is because if they were on the move, then they would be less liable to the influence of the Canaanites around them, to the other groups of people around them, and therefore less likely to be dragged down into Baal worship and all the other kind of stuff that much of of Israel and Judah uh, was. And so that might have been the motivation, trying to protect them, trying to keep them clear-minded, sober-minded, and and moving around, less likely to be infected with the pagan practices of the nations around them. That's somewhat speculative. We do know, though, that that's how they were instructed to live. But what's more, in verse 8, they say, We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our son, our daughters, not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed. We've lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. However, when Nebuchadnezzar came because of the threat, we have retreated to the city. But the implication is this is a temporary situation, just uh, responding to the necessity of the hour. But as soon as the threat is gone, we plan to be back out on the road again. And so that's their obedience. It's an astonishing thing that here, uh, in a situation where there is no doubt some pressure, because these are, you know, here they are in, in Jerusalem, here they are in the temple areas, here they are with Jeremiah the prophet, and they're basically simple folk from out in the country. And this is a pretty high-pressure situation, and they essentially are polite, but just explain why they can't drink this wine, because their father told them not to. And they agreed to that, and they've been obedient to that, and that's how they continue to live. Pretty remarkable thing, really. But then the Lord is actually using this as an object lesson. And what took place is apparently in a a known place, maybe even a prominent place, so that their behavior would be quickly known. And then you see this rebuke of Judah by comparison. In verses 12 and following, Uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is verse 13. Go and say to the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words? And he uses them as a lesson. Look, he says, the command that Jonadab gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. They've done it to this day. They've obeyed their father's commandment. I speak to you and you do precisely the opposite. You know, their father instructed them, and they have obeyed very carefully and faithfully. The Lord says, I've spoken to you, Jerusalem, to you, Judah, 
And you totally disregard, you disobey. You completely ignore what I tell you and, in fact, do precisely the opposite. It's a little bit of a, of a, of a common argument in Scripture, and that is arguing from the lesser to the greater. And essentially the argument is, is if these, these Rechabites kept the command of their father because they honored him and they wanted to respect him, how much more should you in Judah and Jerusalem have obeyed the command of God, who is your heavenly father, who is God Almighty, who is the one who has brought you out of, of Egypt? So an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so the Lord says, you know, they kept the command of their father, but because this people has not obeyed me, I'm going to bring all of these judgments that I've pronounced against them because I've called to them and they haven't answered. The, the passage be, uh, ends with just a, a commendation of the Rechabites. Verse 18, the Lord says, Because you've obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts, done all he commanded you, therefore you will never lack a man to stand before me. God honors them for their faithfulness to their father. In essence, keeping the fifth commandment to honor their father as he made this command to them and charged them to live in this way, and they did it, and they were faithful. And so that's the story of the Rechabites, the story of obedience, the story of faithfulness, the story of standing in the face of pressure to compromise that commitment and yet their unwillingness to do so. Now, as we think about this passage, just think about what happened here. There are a number of things that come to mind by way of reflection or way of application. Perhaps, first of all, is the importance of keeping your word or keeping vows that we have made. They pledged their obedience to the instructions of their father, and uh, they kept it. And they kept it when it was not easy to do so. They kept it when it was socially inconvenient here to do so. Um, they kept their vows. They kept their promise. They kept their word, their obligation, their commitment that they have made. And Scripture speaks a great deal about that. Uh, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus warns the people against taking oaths or vows that does not prohibit us from doing so. Jesus' whole point was, you shouldn't have to be under an oath or vow to keep your word. He says simply, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, that we don't take vows, that we don't place ourselves under oaths to ensure that we're telling the truth or to ensure this, the, the commitment that we're making but in fact, Jesus says, as his people, those ultimately shouldn't even be necessary. If we, if we speak to something, then our word is good, and we stand by it. And that's the Rechabites demonstrate that admirably here. They do what they had committed themselves to do. You think of um, Psalm 15, which says, The righteous man keeps his word even to his own hurt. Even to his own hurt, he will stand by what he said. Now, maybe if you find that a promise or a, or a pledge or an obligation you've committed yourself to is, is going to result in your own harm or hurt, it might be possible to be released from that. But uh, if it's not, then you keep your word, even if it brings you to a disadvantage or even if it results in, in harm to yourself. A righteous man keeps his word even to his own hurt. Um, so it's that important. And so we see here emphasized the, the importance of keeping our word, the importance of remaining faithful to what we commit ourselves to do. 
There's something else going on here that, that is also very important, and it has to do with the necessity of keeping a clear conscience. Now, this is a, a huge issue in the Scriptures, uh, of keeping your conscience clear of sin, but also keeping your conscience clear in areas where there may be disagreement. It's worth noting here that the, the whole uh, object of this, this chapter has to do with wine, where they're drinking wine. The Jeremiah brings a lot of wine in and says, drink wine. And they say, no, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. It's important to note here that the, the passage makes no comment, either approving or disapproving, of their lifestyle. It is their lifestyle. It was, it was charged to them by Jonadab, the son of Rechab, but the scripture itself makes no evaluation as to whether that was a good lifestyle or not. It, it simply acknowledges that it is what is. We've talked about that in other, other places in scripture, notably the book of Acts. But it's true in any narrative or historical part of the Bible that just because the Bible describes something happening doesn't mean it prescribes that it should always happen. You know, we would be very wrong to come away from here and saying, well, see, the Bible says you really shouldn't drink wine. Well, first of all, notice it was Jeremiah the prophet who brought in the wine. Uh, and in fact, the priests were allowed to drink wine as long as they weren't on duty. And you're familiar with other passages, Jesus turning water into wine, Paul telling Timothy to drink some wine for his indigestion and that kind of thing. This is not a passage about whether drinking wine is, is right or wrong. It's about their faithfulness in contrast to Judah's unfaithfulness to their father. But it is worth noting here that for them to drink that wine would have been a violation not only of their, their obligation to their father, but it would have been a violation of their own conscience, because to them that would have been wrong. To them that would have been a violation of an obligation that they had made. It is worth noting that in the scriptures, um, much, as I say, is made of conscience. One passage in particular, uh, a whole chapter actually, is Romans 14, which is an extremely important passage in this regard, uh, the matter of conscience. Also, 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul talks about meat that has been offered to idols, and some Christians eat that without any pang of conscience at all. Those gods are nothing. So what if it was offered to them? It's still good meat. Let's eat it and thank God for it. But other Christians would have a problem with that. You know, this was offered up in a pagan religious ceremony. I want nothing to do with that. I, I couldn't rightly eat and enjoy that meat. Well, notice what Paul says. We won't read all of Romans 14, although if you get a chance, want to read through it. Certainly commend it to you. But just the last paragraph, Romans 14, verse 20. Uh, Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. Uh, Paul tended to have a very free and open conscience about these things. He, they didn't bother him. But notice what he says. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever uh, does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul says, basically, if you have a clear conscience and can do this and enjoy it, that's great. 
Uh, however, if someone around you finds that to be a difficult thing, and a stumbling block, a cause of, of concern for them, maybe you should just abstain when they're around. Uh, and if it's something that you can't do in clear conscience, then for you it is sin. You know, even if God has not prohibited it, if you do this and you feel guilty in your conscience about it, it's like sinning, and you shouldn't do that. Well, Jeremiah comes very close to putting a stumbling block here, although he doesn't force the issue. He's obeying the Lord, so he's good here. Uh, he's not causing them to stumble. He's obeying the Lord, and uh, the Lord's using this to make a point. But uh, for those Rechabites to drink the wine uh, would be wrong. One, because of the obligation they've made, and two, because at this point they would feel guilty if they did so. And so this passage has something to say not only about obligation, but also about conscience, the importance of a clear conscience. You know, Paul, Paul wrote, I always strive to, make, to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And that certainly should be the case with us as well. This is not a passage about wine, it's about faithfulness. But included in it, as part of that, it is a passage about conscience and keeping a good, clear conscience before the Lord and encouraging others to do the same. And then one other thing, uh, just a lesson to learn from this passage to think about, is the importance of faithfulness in little things. This was not earth-shattering. You know, their father told them not to drink wine, to avoid that, to live this certain kind of lifestyle, uh, a nomadic, more mobile lifestyle, not to settle down, but to be on the move. And they did that. And God commends them for that, not because there's anything inherently righteous in that kind of lifestyle. He commends them because they honored their father, because that commitment was commendable and, and somewhat amazing that they had, they had stuck with that, and even when put to the test, in, in somewhat of a, a high-pressure situation, they, they stayed by the obligation that they had made. They were faithful in this commitment that they had made. And the Scriptures makes much of that, not just here in this passage, but in other places as well. Perhaps uh, the most uh, important passage that mentions faithfulness in the little things, and it actually says it in those words, is Matthew chapter 25, Verses 14 and following the parable of the talents, you know, where the men were given the, the five talents, two talents, and one talent. And uh, the man with the five takes them out and uses them to make five more. The man with the two takes those and uses them to make two more. And notice the Lord's response. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then again in verse 23, the man with two talents who made two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The importance of faithfulness in the little things is, is emphasized here. They were faithful. God commends them for that. Now what Matthew's described, what Jesus describes in Matthew in that parable is that they had been faithful over a little. Given that assignment, given that opportunity, they proved faithful, and therefore God has made them in charge of much more. They proved trustworthy. And we're familiar with this, even in our, in our own lives, uh, personal lives, work lives. Uh, most people don't graduate from college and start out as the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. 
it, you just don't work that way. You, you're, you're over smaller things and showing yourself faithful and capable. You're placed in charge of more, placed in charge of more, and, and, and so forth. Uh, the Rechabites were faithful in the little things. We don't see that they were placed in charge of anything more, but the Lord does commend their faithfulness, their obedience, their integrity. Well, certainly, uh, that's a lesson for us to learn and to remember uh, as we serve the Lord in those places where he has put us. Uh, I remember uh, Warren Wiersbe, who was a pastor, radio preacher, uh, who made who made the comment in writing? You know, talking. It, it was a book actually written to uh, seminary students, I think, uh, just preparing them for their first years in ministry. And he made the comment, you know, yes, you may be in a small church, you may be, you know, in some out of the way place, whatever it is. But he said, always do your best. You never know when someone may be measuring you for a larger position. And that's true in ministry, but it's, it's true in, in every area of life. Uh, not just for the hope of promotion, but ultimately to honor the Lord, to honor our Heavenly Father, who has placed us in charge of whatever this might be, uh, whether it's a child or two children or four children or more children or a Sunday school class or whatever it might be, uh, or a position in work, and you think, well, you know, this is, this is just little. This is, this, I, I want something bigger. Well, serve well where you are. Let the Lord see you handle faithfully the little he's given to you, uh, he may well move you and place you in charge of more or use you in a magnificent way in that little spot. Uh, we think of, uh, think of Jonathan Edwards, who was removed from Northampton by his congregation, who then promptly turned around and asked him to serve as the interim pastor while they looked for someone else, which he humbly submitted to, by the way. But then went out to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, you know, it was little, little settlement out on the, the fringe of civilization, on the frontier, but it was there that he wrote some of his most noteworthy works. Uh, and it was from there that he wound up being appointed uh, to serve as the president of what later became Princeton University, which sadly only served for a couple months before he died of a smallpox vaccination gone bad. But the point is to serve faithfully where you are. And that's exactly what the Rechabites did. They had their marching orders and they kept them faithfully and they kept them well. The point being wherever you are. Uh, to remember, to serve faithfully, to be faithful. We don't have instructions like this, or maybe you do, from your earthly father or grandfather, whoever it might be, you know, a family tradition that you, you keep for whatever reason. We're under obligation to our Heavenly Father. And if the Rechabites were so conscientious to be faithful to the instructions of their earthly father, how much more? Should we be conscientious, should we be diligent to be obedient, to be faithful to our Heavenly Father, faithful like a Rechabite? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that by your grace we would be faithful. Uh, Lord, how much more weighty, how much more significant are your commands, your instructions that we find in the Scriptures? Father, we thank you that Christ is our righteousness. Thank you that he is the atonement for our sins. But, Lord, as your children, we want to live by your word. We want to live by your instructions. We want to keep them faithfully and for generation after generation. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us grace to do just that, to be faithful, to be obedient to you, our Father. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.